Coming up on the Unusable Podcast... The history of computer interfaces. When is a computer a bomb? And Andy can't use a parking machine. Yes, I can! (laughs) Welcome to the Unusable Podcast, where we discuss the importance of user experience in technology and the world around us. And we talk about great design that just works or moan about it when it doesn't. Hi, David. Hi, Andy. Andrew, Andy. Either, whatever you, whatever right, you fine. want. Fine. Um, well, you always introduce yourself in a different way. I think you say Andy, Andrew, and I always call you Andy, don't I? Andrew. Right, fine. Well, it's fine. fine. Get on with it. So, yeah, I'm Andrew, and I am a SaaS product owner in Derby. And I'm David. I'm a web developer, and I live in Derbyshire. I'm from Yorkshire. I'll say that. E by gum. Yorkshire's cool now, because Doctor Who's from Yorkshire. Yeah. You don't, you don't care about that. Never mind. Fine. Move on. <laughs> What are we talking about? So this podcast, I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at the evolution of user interface from the beginning of computers right through to today and what we might see in the future. Okay, that sounds exciting. Have you done some research? As usual, I've done a little <laughs> bit of research. <laughs> Good, and you I can start lots, then. Lots of boring facts. Okay, but before you start, can we say hello to our new Twitter followers, which are, in no particular order, Larry K, Matt Brunt, Eva K. Corbin UX, Jonathan Talk, Doug Nelson, and Sucky UX. Welcome. Okay. I recognise one of those names. <laughs> the Sucky UX is well worth following like on Twitter because they like retweet examples of really bad UX. Like us. Like us. Yeah, we yeah. We, we notice we notice things in the real world. Yeah, that's true. I quite like men about just ridiculous things that I find. Very cathartic. <laughs> is it? I think so. Yeah. I think it makes you feel better about yourself somehow. It makes you feel better that someone else has invented something that's terrible. Yeah. I think that we should point out things that are bad because then it kind of shares this understanding. Because well, what's I think your intention it, of pointing out something that's bad? That they'll fix it or just have a laugh at it? Both? Because if people agree that something is bad, then those people might go on to invent something, build a product, create an interface, make a website, make an app, something like that. Those people might not make those mistakes if they've seen examples of why or how something's bad. Making the world a better place. Well, that's it, yeah. One, if we... one UX problem at a time. Exactly, yeah. Because <clears throat> you don't want things to be awful. So that's actually an interesting segue into what we're hopefully going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because what you're saying is that by learning from previous mistakes and evolving through time, things hopefully get better. Oh. And that by calling out the, the problems of the past, we move forward into a better age. All right, you, you, you're overselling it now. Just carry on. <laughs> too much (laughs) so i i was doing a bit of research and i think user interfaces span three maybe four key eras okay so you have early computers where they were literally just levers and buttons and maybe tape with holes punched in it punch tape and that was the only way to interface with the machine that was your input that was your output and then things moved into command line interface so you're typing on a screen with a little blinking underscore pressing enter the computer does something and then you get another blinking prompt to enter something what sort of era are we talking about now so what sort of decade that's like uh 70s okay 60s 70s so i'm just imagining someone in a white room with computers with those little tapes that sort of revolve yeah. around yeah okay well that's that's the first era really okay and maybe the second slightly and then we move into graphical user interfaces which is I would say still the predominant mechanism of of human computer interaction today. Okay, yeah, using a screen. And then these days, more likely a touchscreen. And then what we're moving into more and more is natural user interfaces. Like. 
like asking Alexa to do something. Yeah. Oh, okay. So voice, using your voice. Maybe. I mean, I think I think it's the new wave of user interfaces which are just starting to, to emerge. Yeah, I think you're right. I think at home, I'm using voice more and more to do things like turn the TV on. Even simple things like setting a, a kitchen timer. I use that a lot. So I've just put something in the oven and I'll tell Google to set a timer. But the annoying thing about that is if you've got more than one, they don't link up. So we often set a timer in our kitchen. <laughs> for 10 minutes and then it rings and you say hey google stop stop alarming but stop it... alarming does it work well, i don't know what, uh, what stop timer i say stop timer stop timer yeah okay but but if it no if a it's not stopping if a different <laughs> if a different one picks it up oh yeah so you've yeah, got goes, i'm sorry there's no timer set hang on what so you've got one in your kitchen one in your living room yeah yeah so yeah we have as well it's kind of like we've knocked it through like to one room but we've got one close oh, fancy all right well <laughs> Oh, I mean, I've got one room. <laughs> Why is that fancy? I live in one room. You live in a bed <laughs> So we've got one near the TV, which is useful for saying, pause TV, play this thing on Netflix, things like that. And then we've got one in the kitchen, which is mostly useful for setting, playing music or setting timers, that sort of thing. But what I like about that is that you don't have to pick up your phone and use your phone or any other, any like remote controls. So you can just, wherever you are, or you could be holding some things. You can use just your voice. Yeah. Easy. One of the interesting things that I read, and in fact, I wonder if we're talking about natural user interface a bit prematurely because we skip straight to the future one, really. But Let's go right back to the, we go back to dawn, the of time. <laughs> dawn of time. The dawn of time. Well, I was reading about... So one of my personal interests is World War II. And during World War II, the first electronic programmable computer was developed, which is Colossus. Okay. And you, if you visit Bletchley Park... That is Colossus, man. <laughs> Absolutely Colossus. Well, what was it called? Colossus. Oh, right. And if you go to Bletchley Park, yeah, yeah. where the code breaking was done in World War II, near Milton Keynes, which is not a nice place to visit, if you go there, you can actually see they've done a replica of a working one. Which is oh, what happened to the original? They just get, like, re... Well, it was... It it was war secrets, wasn't it? It got disassembled and hidden, and the the, the, the fact that it even existed didn't come out till years later because okay. it was so, so vitally important to the war. People commonly think that it was used to people get mixed up with Turing and Enigma, but it wasn't. It was it was actually a development on from what Turing did. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on, hang on. Start right back at the start. <laughs> You're saying these words. So it was used for code breaking in the Second World War. So the Germans would communicate with each other via wireless messages sent, Mm -hmm. um, which I think was just basic Morse code, I think. But they would encrypt the message first. So they would change the letters into something else, send the message on the other side. They could type the same, the the, the gibberish letters in and get a readable message back. Okay. Now the low end army people would com- communicate using Enigma, but that was actually quite easy to break. Turing worked on breaking that code and developed a machine called the Bomb, which actually there's also, I think, a working example of, actually. He called his computer the Bomb. <laughs> it was called the Bomb, yeah. B-O-M-B-E though, like bomb, Bombay. Bomb. Oh, right, okay. Bomb. It's um, confusing talking about war when he, he made a bomb, but it wasn't a bomb. <laughs> He didn't think about the usability, did he? Well, that's not usability. That's basic terminology. <laughs> but that one was, I think, quite... Unless I'm mistaken, I think it was quite mechanical. Maybe it's, it was electrical. I'm not sure. But it has, like, spinning wheels on the front that tell you a potential combination. Okay. So um, if you wanted to use this computer, as we're talking about user interfaces, what would you have to do? So I think early computers... I'm not actually 100% sure for the bomb, but I know Colossus, the input was punched tape and you would program it using switches and plug boards. So, you know, like a vintage um, telephone exchange where I, where you say, hello, operator, I'm putting you through 
through, and then you see the person sort of. There's just lots of wires that they're yeah, all plugging so you, into you, different you, you plug holes. A wire into two holes, and it made some kind of connection, and that programmed the computer to do something. Okay. But as far as I'm aware, those early computers, both the Bomb and Colossus, were literally just trying combinations to try and find something that worked. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that a computer can try permutations a lot faster than a human could. But it actually, all it did was narrow it down into a set that a human could then go over and say, well, actually, that's the right one. So say, for example, you have a gibberish message. Yeah. You feed that into the machine and you say somewhere in this message, there's the words Hitler, because I think they like, that's how they eventually broke it, because most of their messages started with Heil Hitler or something or the German weather report or something like that. Okay. So with some known information, you can say, try every combination until you find one where the word Hitler appears and then note that down. And so they would, it would just churn through combinations and go, oh, seen Hitler in the middle of this message here. Maybe that's the right combination. Keep oh, going. Right. Churn, 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 churn. I think I've seen Hitler here again. Note down that one. But then a human would come along and, and manually, have to manually process those. But you wouldn't have been able to operate a computer like that at all without extensive training and manuals. And, you know, there's no discoverability, was there? There was, I mean, it was it was literally, you would have to be a highly buffin. trained. Yeah, completely. So we're saying that only boffins can use these sort of computers. People who are highly trained and know exactly what they're doing. It's not for everyday users. In fact, anyone that you take off the street would just wouldn't have a clue what to do. I, d- I don't think so. I, I mean, I wouldn't particularly know what to do. But, I mean, but that's not their intention. These are specialist machines. They're not supposed to be useful for yes. everyone. But in order for computers to break out of the laboratory, they had to become easier to use. Obviously, also in conjunction with that, with that was making them smaller. The Colossus is the size of a, a whole room. Yeah. So they had to be made smaller, but also more approachable and standardised and documented and, yeah, just generally easier to use. That was in 1943, by the way, Colossus. So a long time ago. Okay, so when did computers come into the sort of realm of normal people who aren't boffins? Do you know what? I don't have a date for that. But the first the first sort of home user interfaces and things, you know, once we developed screens and things, was the, the first thing was the command line interface, really. Mm-hmm. So, a, you know, a blinking prompt. You type in an instruction, press enter, type something else in, press enter. Each time you're asking the computer to do something, it does something and it comes back. Yeah, I had a Commodore 64... And to load any game, you had to type the word load. Exactly that, yeah. Or was it run? Maybe it start. We had to type a word, press enter, and it would, it would go. It would do it. Now, I'm a little bit younger than you. My early com- computer experiences were just on the fringe of the transition between uh, command line interfaces and GUIs. Yeah. So the first, the first proper computer I interacted with was Windows 95. Oh, really? Yeah. But I did have, I did have the occasional go on. My sister had a a Sinclair ZX Spectrum before that. Oh, tell with, me about that. With a rubber keyboard. Rubber? What do you mean rubber? So the the key, the keyboard, it was made to be as cheap as possible. It was, Sinclair wanted it to be a, a budget computer for, for everyone. So rather than having expensive mechanical keys, they saved costs by having a rubber keyboard with these horrible spongy rubber. Oh. Yeah. It's like, I can't even describe it. That sounds awful. You know, like a Nokia 3310 had like rubber <laughs> buttons on it. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. A bit like that. Okay. Like that. In fact, I remember when I was Nokia 3310, total aside, but you could change the outer covers, couldn't you? And you could change the keypad. You could get like a different coloured keypad for it. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Irrelevant. Total tangent. But <laughs> yeah, that was that was weird because it's before people had standardised on things like keyboard layouts and things like that fully. I mean, QWERTY was fairly established, but there were a lot of new functionalities being added and no one had really standardised on it. So all, all the programming commands were like a key combination. So in order to do the print command, if you're writing a program, you'd have to press like control P or something along those lines. 
And so all the keys had like the words, literally the words of different commands that the programming language could do written on the keys. So like that control P, whatever, would create the word print. Yeah, the letter P would bizarrely have the... So on a, on a modern keyboard, the key, the P key just has P on it, doesn't it? Yeah. But on an old Sinclair keyboard, it would say P and, and also print. So if you pressed it normally, it would do a P. But if you pressed like a special combination key and that key, it would go print, which was actually like a separate command. You couldn't write the word print. Oh, right. So what if you write it? So if you're writing a program and you write the word print, it's not the same. It would interpret that as literal letters. And it's that's different from pressing the special control key and then P, which would write, it would look the same on screen. It would say print. So weird. But that was a special command. Yeah, but early computers. I suppose they're not standardised on things like, all computers now have control and an alt and a shift. Mm-hmm. But there are still things? some differences. Like think about the command key on a Mac versus the Windows key on a... Yeah, true. On a Windows computer, which is called the super key on on Linux. And there's still some keyboard layout differences like the at on a Mac is different to where it is on Windows PC. Yeah, but that, I think that's I think that's international differences, isn't it? That's not. I don't know. I suppose it's to do with the evolution. I, I don't wonder what I wonder, actually. We should we should find that out for the next podcast and tell people how those keyboard layouts evolved. Why do Americans have a thin long enter key and why do Europeans have a a tall enter key? I genuinely don't know that answer. So All right. if, if anyone knows, tweet us. Tweet, tweet us at unusable podcast. Hashtag keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag keyboard. Get involved. (laughs) But the thing about... So I found this quite interesting diagram on a website called uh, interactiondesign.org. So it's the Interaction Design Foundation. But they've got a really interesting article about, about, about this. And they say that CLI interfaces are codified and strict. Hang on a sec. CLI? Command line. Command line. So that's... So a text prompt. Yeah, so for for anyone who doesn't know what that is, yeah, typing stuff in, all nerdy. Press enter. Press in, enter. Some stuff flies past, you then get another blinking point, and some then you can type. stuff flies past? Yeah, generally, if you type in a command, something will happen, you get something printed on the screen. Yeah, okay. So let's say if you, you're in your a folder of, of pictures, and you typed in, like, dir on Windows or ls on a Linux computer, you'd get loads of text would fly past, which is the image a list of images in that folder. Yeah. And then you could type in something else, like move an image or delete an image or rename an image or something like that. And not, that could, not that you could look at an image on a, 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 a CLI. Um, it's rented out in ASCII art. But it's interesting because they say that uh, CLI is codified and strict. What does that mean? So what they mean by that is, well, codified is you have you can only enter certain things, basically, isn't it? It's, it's You have to write in a code, the right code is strict. Yeah, you have to know what those things are. I struggle with CLI yeah. interfaces because I'm used to clicking on icons mm-hmm. and moving windows and, and using a full graphical interface. Whereas with a CLI like you're talking about, you've got to know every command, you've got to know what you're doing. Because you can do powerful things, obviously you can, but unless you know what you're doing, it's pretty much inaccessible. Yeah. I, I remember for um, BBC Micro, I think, we had a, a huge book of like commands and things that you could do with the BBC Basic. When did you have a BBC Micro? Well, this was, I've got this retrospectively. As an oh, adult. right. So it's not from when I was a kid, but, but it, it has this thick, thick, thick book of like BBC Basic commands that you can type in. But without that, you are scuppered. Without some kind of reference to, to the language that it, you need to write in, you are scuppered. Yeah. And it's not like you can just figure it out either. 
Well, the funny thing is, pe- people <laughs> used to buy magazines like computer magazines, take them home for their personal computers, no internet in those days. Oh, yeah. Of and they, these magazines would have computer programs in them that you could type out line by line. I remember would... doing this. Yeah, I remember they're... getting a, a. I used to get the Commodore 64, the Commodore Formats magazine, and they would print these lines of code. You type it all in. And most people would... had no idea what they were typing in, but they, yeah. just, well, they just saw yeah. a picture of the end result in the magazine and knew that that's what they wanted to yeah. do. And then it made a game. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so impressed. I've made this game. Just by typing these commands in, then you turn it off and it's gone. Yeah. No way to save it back then. So, more accessible than what came before it, plug boards and... At least it's documented and standardised. Yeah, true. At least it's accessible to most people because it because it has some kind of standard. And there's a screen so we can... We don't have to waste reams of tape with output or printer pa- print paper with, with output. Imagine the first computer that had a screen. You yeah. would just be like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Yeah. Because you just, what would you do before that? Print things out? Yeah. So the, the Colossus, its only output was um, a stream of, of, of typewriter output on paper. Yeah. So you'd feed in tape with holes in it yeah. as its input. Yeah. You'd program it using switches and, and plug boards, cables, and output would be text on paper. Make it really difficult to do any gaming, wouldn't it? What? Not having a screen. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You could do a basic game with, with text. Text adventure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go north. <laughs> Print some more out. Yeah. Go east. <laughs> you are in a cops. <laughs> that works. Yeah. So old games on the Commodore 64, This it felt like that was the birth of gaming because no one really knew what a game should be like. Like now, games are pretty much all the same. Well, there's different types, right? That You've got your first person shooter, you've got your... RPG type, you've got things like that. But back then, everything was fair game. No one really knew. There was no standards yet. So they had some really weird games. I think people work with what's available. Yeah, true. If you'd have given people at that time a screen, they uh, uh, sorry, a a graphical system and a you know more advanced screen output, they'd have probably done more with it. But people were working with the limited tools they had at the time. You know, games had to fit in a very small amount of memory. It was so basic on the Commodore though. I remember you you got one this, you got tape, put it in, press play, and load at the same time. Yeah, and then it would load like I don't know twenty minutes or something, like a really long time. If anything slightly failed... Oh, yeah, you have to start again. The whole thing start again. I remember having this Batman game that was like a platformer type game where when you get to the end of the level, you then had to play the tape again to load level two. (laughs) It couldn't obviously fit that much stuff in memory. Yeah, but if the game ever crashed and didn't load properly, it would go on to level two just automatically sometimes. If you fast forwarded the tape to a certain point, press play, it would load level two without even having to load level one. I bet there was like a cheat guide published in a magazine. Yeah, probably. Yeah, this is the time index that you need to start playing from. Yeah, because a lot of tape tape decks back then as well had a little counter on, didn't they? So you'd be able to know like a counter. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Can I tell you something that I learned about the very first typewriters? Because we're talking about keyboard layouts and stuff like that. Sure. Some of the first typewriters were invented by, or they were created by the same company that created sewing machines. So they looked kind of similar to a sewing machine. And it had right. like this sort of, I don't know what you call it, but a round spinny thing. And it had the keyboard in front of you. And I have no idea if it was QWERTY or not. I don't know where the, the standard QWERTY layout came from. Well, didn't, so this is a slight tangent, but didn't the QWERTY layout come from, so typewriters, um, 
do you call them, people that use a typewriter? Typists? Yeah, typists were getting so fast. Each time you pressed a key, there'd be an arm that would fly onto the paper and make the mark. Yeah. And because these key, these arms are all quite close together, typers, uh, typists got so fast pressing the keys that the arms would crash into each other and create a jam, and then you'd have to unjam the arms that got stuck together. So the QWERTY keyboard was designed, I think, to slow them down and also to make sure that consecutive presses were likely to be from the opposite sides of the of the arm bank so that we're less likely to collide with each other. Okay, that's interesting. I, that could be that could be urban legend slash nonsense, but I'm pretty sure that's true, that QWERTY was designed to both slow them down and also reduce the likelihood of a collision in these arms flying onto the paper. Sorry, carry on. What are you, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so on this typewriter machine, there was, it was so similar to a sewing machine. It had like a, a foot pedal and the foot pedal was for the carriage return. So no enter key. So no enter key. So when you got to the, when you want to create a new paragraph, foot pedal. That's a good point. Why don't computers today, like we sit there at our desks doing everything with our hands and eyes but why not feet yeah foot pedal for space bar maybe yeah no nobody's actually um because you get all sorts of weird like interaction devices that some people prefer like weird mice that are upright or trackballs or the different types of you yeah. know, keyboards and things nobody ever seems to do anything for feet i suppose you can't really guarantee that people have feet you can't guarantee they've got arms either maybe to be honest they probably are adaptive there probably is adaptive technology for people who for example have lost an arm or are born without an arm to to maybe use a foot to to do things because I would imagine that's actually quite sensible. Moving on from command line, the next point in history is the graphical user interface. Okay. 1973, I think, the uh, Xerox labs invented it. Uh, it. There's a computer called the Xerox Alto. Don't believe it was sold commercially. It cost $12,000 and it was came out of a research project by led by someone called Douglas Engelbart, who was quite keen on things like hand-eye coordination and using that to drive a user interface. And this was the first computer that we'd recognise today. It had a mouse and a keyboard had a mouse it was as far as far as i'm aware it had a mouse yeah it was it was wimp it was windows Ooh. icons mouse and pointer which is the the classic name given to a windows style interface and i don't okay. mean windows as in windows windows i mean it just had windows it had windows did it have like directories that you open up and it opened up oh, a do window? You know what? i don't know do let's find a picture find a let's picture. find a picture and we'll tweet it let's have a look yeah, it had, it had layered windows. It had layered windows, it had a keyboard, and it had a mouse. And I'm pretty sure that was mostly all new to the Xerox Alto. It had a screen that was portrait as well. What the hell? Who has portrait screens? The Xerox Alto has a portrait Who invented screen. that? But I suppose they weren't to know. Douglas Engelbart believed in this thing called augmentation of human intellect. And what he what that what's meant by that is that computers are an extension of our own intelligence. Okay. As opposed to artificial intelligence where they think almost for themselves. This is, yeah, or, you know, adding to human human knowledge. That was 1973. Okay, so I'm just looking at this now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does look like a normal computer. The keyboard yeah. looks sensible. There's a shift, yeah. there's a control, there's a tab, there's a return, there's a shift on the other side, there's a delete where you think the delete should be. But look at what's on the screen. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a graphical user interface. Yeah, with it's, Windows. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't really understand it, but yeah. It's got a mouse, but it's got three buttons. I used a mouse at school, primary school that had three buttons. Was it on an Acorn computer? I think it was an Acorn, yeah. I still have quite a few Acorn computers. And the middle button was kind of like a... Premium. You needed all three buttons. You needed all three buttons. Mm-hmm. Left mouse button was... I would sort of click on things now. Right mouse button was just like an alternate... 
use. But the middle brought up a sort of right click menu. A right click menu, yeah. That's on that's on Risk OS. Risk OS first came out in 1987 and was Acorn's attempt at a GUI. But before that, the first commercially successful GUI was the Apple Macintosh in 1984. Yeah, people went on about that. Yeah, with its very famous, you know, throwing the gong at the screen advert. It's not a gong, is it? You know what I mean? Throwing the hammer thrower advert. No idea what you're talking about. There's a very famous advert for Apple where it's based on the George Orwell. Someone's running in and there's loads of people marching, zombies like marching, and there's a screen telling them what to do. And then the hammer thrower spins a hammer around and it hits the screen and it smashes and then it says something like, this is why 1984 won't feel like 1984. Right. George Orwell reference. Okay. But the Macintosh was the first commercially successful GUI computer. Just so, have a look at an Apple Macintosh. Yeah. We had these in school. Did you? Um, in secondary school. The original They're quite mine. small. Yeah. Small screen. This did have a way to save because mm-hmm. the computer itself had a floppy disk drive, floppy in, it. Disk drive in it. And the keyboard looks sensible. But this is the first commercially successful GUI. So they took, regardless of how it happened, they took what um, Xerox had pioneered with this Windows icon mouse and pointer and they made it commercially successful they you know Steve Jobs is probably the person that recognised the power yep. and the you know how how amazing it would be as a commercial product and took it to market and actually got commercial success with it I'm still looking at the pictures of the Xerox Alto with his portrait screen it's just <laughs> mental it's just absolutely mental. Have you ever tried to? Yeah, but put... if you if you think about for a business machine where you're looking at documents, does a vertical screen not make sense? Yeah, you'd think so. But I tried it once. There's something just weird about it. Is that just because of what you of what you're used to? No, it's weird because my head swivels left to right. It doesn't swivel up and down that well. Ah, because you've got eyes side by side. Yeah, something about it. It just feels like too much screen. So why well, then like do you just... keep annoying me by sending me vertical videos? Because that's what my phone takes. You hold you hold your phone that way around when you take a video no you don't turn it around I don't (laughs) I just like to hold it I like to get a good grip on it My first memory of, of a GUI is Windows 95. Okay. Really. Did you see anything before that? Yeah. The first Windows. Windows before 1. That. Windows yeah. 1 for DOS, 1985. Yeah. There were some of those at school. Pretty not, sure. Not Windows 3.1. When did you go to secondary school? It would have been Windows 3.1. Yeah. From what I was reading, and I, I wasn't around at the time, but Windows 1 was actually quite poorly received, and Windows only really got traction with Windows 3.1. Oh, uh, okay. That's when it really exploded and was well marketed and, um, and went somewhere. I had a graphical interface on my Amiga. Really? Yeah. What, so, was, the, what was the graphical inter- interface on an Amiga like? It was called Workbench and it was on my Amiga 1200 that we bought second hand and it had a hard drive. The first computer I had with a hard drive and it was that was quite a big upgrade from, from oh, the wow. Commodore 64. I'm just and looking it, at screenshots now. Yeah, it had Windows that like you would, it didn't have Windows Windows but it had sure. things that looked like Windows uh, it had folders that you could expand and open. It had the ability to save games on the hard drive itself, so you didn't have to go and find the disk. It's actually interesting that they all seem to evolve in a very similar fashion. They must have all been copying off each other. Or that's just the best way. Sometimes you don't copy. If, if things are invented simultaneously, that's just possibly the best and most sensible way to do things. The Interaction Design Foundation say, so they said they were the ones that said that, that CLI is codified and strict. They say that a GUI is metaphorical and a, a exploratory. Yeah, you can figure it out. Yes. That's what's but it's also good. metaphorical. It's a digital simulation of your desktop. It's called a desktop. It's a digital simulation of a desk. It's like having pieces of paper stacked on a desk in a, in a sort of 
pseudo... It's not 3D, but, you know, the fact that they layer on top of each other is like having bits of paper... On top of each other. On top of each other in front of you. Yeah. And the Amiga Workbench interface Mm -hmm. had these drawers, and the drawer is a folder. Oh, really? So they'd taken the metaphor one stage further? Yeah. And so when you clicked on it, it sort of opened and brought out this window of files inside. So it's like you were going inside a drawer. I'm pretty sure they called them drawers as well. That's interesting. But if you look at a GUI, if you look at... I'm just looking at the Amiga Workbench now. And to say that there are no differences from then to what we have today in terms of what's the latest version of Windows, Windows 10, and the latest version of Mac OS and Linux. Now, of course, things have changed a lot. But the core principles, really, are very much similar. Well, that's because... In, in a desktop computer, there's, there's there's been evolution, but there really hasn't been, in the, in the desktop computer space at least, any sort of revolution, I don't think. How can you... Im- Improve on perfection. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it's something, but, if something's sensible, you, obviously you can innovate and stuff, but if something's for getting stuff done, it needs to be functional. You don't want to really have to make people learn how to do new things, which is why this window system of clicking something opens a window, that sort of works. So it doesn't but, really need to be invented. But how much do you think that that just has stuck around because it's what people are used to? And how much do you think that it is actually the best, the best thing? for the job. I think in this case the best thing for the job is something that people are used to. In 1985 Amiga OS launched with the Amiga 1000. See I never had an Amiga so I'm... Oh they were they were good. It was Commodore wasn't it? It was called the Commodore Amiga but they didn't really make much of the word Commodore. Commodore was actually American. Well to, to be honest I should have known that because the main English brands were oh sorry I should say British brands were Acorn and Sinclair who were competing with each other very closely from Cambridge which by the way if you've never seen it Micro Men which is a, a factual dramatisation Micro Men Micro Men BBC about one hour long and it's a drama based upon the early days of Acorn and very small people <laughs> not like micro machines micro <laughs> oh men. micro machines i had that on the on the amiga brilliant game i had it on a the mega drive and it was weird because it had extra controller ports in the cartridge so you could plug in two controllers into the uh, thing itself yeah and then a further two controllers into the game cartridge which give you four controllers and then the game only needed half a controller to, to operate so you could actually get eight players on a mega drive How playing micro half machines. a controller because there was a deep a d-pad is all you need and on the other side was four buttons you only need like three or four buttons to oh, okay you'd accelerate left and right that's it I I had some joysticks for my Amiga. I only had two, so only two people could play. With the, with the fights? With the fights. Well, well, I don't know if you invite three people around. I don't have that many friends. <laughs> <laughs> So the thing that we've seen a, a, a shift to lately, and what I think we're going to see more of in the future, is what's been coined as natural user interface. Hang on a sec. Before you move on to this, why don't we talk about touchscreen? Well, I think that is actually a form of natural user interface. So it's more natural because you're using your finger, you're clicking on things. So a, a full natural user interface is one that doesn't require really any knowledge, and it's just using voice, gesture, movement completely to control the device. So there's no learning 
learning required. What movement are you doing? Ooh. Well, for example, a Nintendo Wii controller. Yeah. Okay. Is is a is a very good example of that. Yeah. But one thing I sorry one thing I did read which is really interesting is that not all voice and not all touch is natural user interface. So think about for example having to do a four fingered gesture on a Mac. I think I think on a Mac you can put four fingers on the touchpad and, it, and like swipe up and it does something. I know if you do if you use two fingers on a touchpad it scrolls. If you use three it kind of minimizes the windows a bit. What's four? I don't know, but I think it does something. But my point is that that's not natural user interface because you wouldn't naturally use four fingers and like do a weird movement. And also it's it's not particularly discoverable. You wouldn't exactly. know that. You have to kind of know. Exactly. Like, I don't think that I would have just used two fingers. But I think scrolling on an on a on a touch device like an Android device or an iOS device where you literally are using a finger to push the page up, I think that is a natural user interface. True. That is that is a natural motion. It's what you would expect to do but to that's move something, that, something up. That's something that first came in with touchscreens, surely. Yeah. You're using a, a touchscreen device and you're sort of dragging mm-hmm. the phone. Yeah. Are phones the first touchscreen things? I suppose they're not. I remember going to the Natural History Museum as a kid, a long time ago. I was quite young. And there's some computers there, you know, computers that you could press for digital displays. And they had a touch interface where you were touching the screen. And that's the first time that I saw it. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. It's like I'm touching a computer screen and it's working. And that does feel quite a lot different to using a mouse. Because with a mouse, you're moving this thing that's not on the screen. Yeah. And you've got a representation of the mouse which is why it's kind of like a metaphor you know your movements are not exactly what's influencing what you're seeing but it's kind of it translates okay but it's not exact is it it's not the same thing um whereas with 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 a good touch interface it is you know like a pinch to zoom where you actually grab i think that's quite a good a good interface it's quite a natural you know you're literally squeezing it together and it and it goes smaller under your fingers that's true apple made a big deal of that when they when that first came out i think that's the kind of thing that it would have been invented anyway but they were the first ones the first ones there yeah pinch zooming brilliant you know we were talking about the tom tom in the last podcast yeah the earliest tom tom that i had the one that i had before that one you couldn't do any sort of pinch zooming on the map it was really difficult you had to use the plus and minus at the side i remember at the time thinking there's got to be a better way for this and then now i use my phone all the time and you can pinch zoom on google maps and it just feels a hell of a lot more natural yeah totally natural in fact that's i think that tom tom is a very good example of why not all voice is natural user interface yeah true because what's natural user interface is what you do on google maps is where you say okay buzzword that's going to make your phone work (laughs) if i I actually say it but then you can say navigate to chesterfield and that's the natural way you'd say it and it understands that and it does the navigation whereas with the tom tom it was not a natural experience because we had to say hey tom tom whatever it was yeah we had to say the exact keywords exactly that it wanted as we were navigating Um, through this menu and it didn't feel natural at all, did it? it felt, exactly. It felt really weird. Just saying that voice is a natural user interface is is not necessarily true. And just saying that touch is a natural user interface is not necessarily true. There's more than that. It has to it has to allow you to say what you would what you would say, and which is you know the great that the Google Assistant, for example, allows you to say something in a number of ways, and it just understands you. You know, you can say turn the lights off, turn off the lights, turn the lights down, make it dark. You know, you can say all sorts of weird and wonderful things and it still gets your intention and that's what natural user interface is it's not hey google control the lights okay what lights do you want to control the living room lights what do you want to do you know that's so unnatural is it listening now because i said the, the phrase yeah <laughs> 
Sorry. So what else do you think is going to happen in the future? Do you think there's going to be more gesture with things like things like virtual reality? You know, real human movements translated in, into a into a computer. I've seen concepts of weird kind of uh, hand gesture things that will sit on your desk. And they will um, look at what your hand position is in, in sort of 3D space. And you can... Like Minority Report. Like Minority Report, yeah. So if you've not seen that film, um, Tom Cruise is stood in front of this big screen. And I don't think he touches it in any way, does it? Is he touching a screen? Or is it like a holographic one? I don't I really know. he holds his hands out in front of him. Yeah, it's kind of like it was semi-transparent, wasn't it? He could sort of see... Like using a theremin. Like using a theremin. Yeah, okay. That musical in- weird musical instrument. It's like an L shape. Yeah. Kind of put your hand in it and it goes... And go, yeah, okay. So yeah. he was moving these things around. But he was using sort of pictures like windows wasn't he still he was moving these things around he was getting um like video files i think it was like the memories of some people and he was moving them around i think still really like a flat space it's still yeah it still was a flat space even though he was using his hands in 3d space yeah so even though it was quite a futuristic film at the time they haven't done anything different to what we have on user interfaces right now he's essentially using just a holographic windows So, yeah, going back to that article that has some quite interesting things to say about, about different interface types. They say that natural user interfaces should be direct and intuitive. Um, As in what? So I think I think what that means is that you don't even need to learn or discover anything. It just it just is. So we went from, you know, a CLI, which is strict and you had to have a manual for, to a GUI that you could click around and discover things, to a natural user interface, which doesn't even need discovery. It literally is obvious. You know, like a door handle is obvious because it's, you know, hand shaped and you go up and pull it it's that level of thing for a computer interaction you can just say call gary and it will ring your mate gary yeah whereas instead you have to use your phone open up the address book thingy find gary which is discoverable but it's not natural true i think bill gates has it this is an interesting quote from bill gates so he says until now we have always had to adapt to the limits of technology and conform the way we work with computers to a set of arbitrary conventions and procedures with nui computing devices will adapt to our needs and preferences for the first time and humans will begin to use technology in whatever way is most comfortable and natural for us don't have to discover where the menu is to do the thing you don't have to work out what to click on you don't need a manual you just ask and it will either do it or say it can't there's no how do you know where the limits are if that's the case how do you know what it well, can do and what it can't do i agree i think that's actually a downside of a voice interface is that there's there is there is no discoverability and interestingly i think there's been a shift in music listening because of this because previously people would say you know oh well, let me browse browse what i like you know, maybe I'll go for this, maybe I'll go for that. Let's see, I'll do a search. What similar artists are there, right? How do you do that with a voice search? How yeah, do you, you say, unless you know exactly what you want? Um, and it's actually, they did someone, I saw recently a, a music chart actually that compared for, I think it was music played on Spotify or one of the main players versus music played on the same platform but asked for via voice search. And the top music was very, very different. The top music via voice search were all big albums from a long time ago because people were like obviously panicking and going, oh, I want to listen to some music, but I don't know what. Um, oh, that Michael Jackson album I know I like from ages ago. Or <laughs> one of the top ones was Ed Sheeran, an album that's not been that came out a few years ago. But people obviously go, oh, um, oh, Ed Sheeran, play that, right? Okay. But there's no discover. There's no like, oh, what's the popular stuff now? Oh, I'll play that, which is what drives music 
taste in um, in an actual GUI, you, people will go, well, what's the top thing now? Or maybe that, or what's similar to that? They'll Yeah, because if you look explore. on iTunes, it'll show you like the top, what's popular, what's trending, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's actually dangerous in a way that more and more music is becoming what has been cre- curated for us. You can only, even on, even on a platform like Spotify, I think it can be hard to really dive into something unusual because it surfaces the popular stuff. But if, with voice, it's even worse. It's like, how do you discover something different? Unless 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 you ask it for something different, but then you're totally at its whim to play you. You know, it could play you what is commercially most, makes it most money in licensing. Or it might be playing you what it thinks that you like because it knows everything that you've asked in the past and everything you've listened to in the past. So it's probably going to play you things that it thinks you're going to be interested in. But isn't that dangerous, letting technology choose for us the the music that we might want to listen to? No. Won't it pigeonhole us? No, I like it. I think I've listened... Well, I know that I've listened to music a hell of a lot more since having a Google Assistant because I can ask for anything. But I'll ask... I won't ask for a specific album. I will ask for something fairly generic. I'll say... Oh, uh, could you play some relaxing classical? Or I'll say, could you play some uh, nice jazz? Or can you play some dramatic orchestral? I'll say things like that. And it knows what I like because of what I've I've only ever been disappointed with that kind of search. But it never plays what I wanted to play. Maybe, Maybe that's the difference then. I don't actually want any specific thing. I just want to type. No, well, I, I often don't want a specific type of music, but it never seems to play what I want it to play. Do you think that we will see a regression in terms of people's computer skill? And is that a problem? What I mean by this is that I grew up interacting with a computer with a mouse and a keyboard. And so becoming a a programmer was just an extension of that skill set. Nowadays, more and more interaction is done with a touch interface and, and kids are learning touch in a way that, you know, they're not particularly necessarily as much going for a keyboard and a mouse type setup. But the touch interface is 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 very good for consuming content but i don't think it's particularly good for creating content Um, so 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 is there going to be a dearth of creatives and i suppose it's not just programmers things like video editing really still needs i think predominantly mouse and keyboard and yeah a, a lot of the content creation you know typing a document even really needs a full keyboard and mouse and are we going to see a dearth of that skill or are we going to see you know problems with our future generation because they'll be just, you know, slaves to a, a an iPad or or something. It could happen. I I've been volunteering at a code club for kids, and that's where the kids are like seven or eight or something like that, and they're using these laptops and they're being set these little tasks to make computer games using using Scratch, it's like a little graphical programming language. You could tell that when they're using a mouse, they don't seem all that confident, which surprised me because I thought they'd all have access to like computers, but maybe they've got laptops with touchpads or maybe they're just using iPads so they're maybe not used to using a mouse I think it's I think it's a worry that yeah those those skills aren't necessarily being being learned if everything does go to completely to natural user interface into in, in terms of consumption of, 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 of media yeah then potentially kids aren't going to grow up with a mouse and keyboard and so the next generation of, of program programmers of writers using writing documents I think there could be some some difficulty there I think writing is something that this 
could still do. Anyway, you Probably. could dictate with the voice recognition. Probably. I mean, yeah, I think I think we'll find we'll find a way. But I I, I just I guess worry that that it's not as conducive to to that creative aspect. Do you think less people will have access to laptops in the future? Personally, I can't see laptops going away from or, or at least any some form of computer with a keyboard and a mouse. I think is still the best paradigm around for content creation. And by that I mean, you know, graphic editing, video editing, programming, document writing, all those things. I think yeah. that is the best user interface paradigm. I, I think that their use will diminish. I think more and more people will go to a touch interface for example, my parents still struggle with a full computer, but I don't know why. They may as well just have some kind of tablet because all they do is browse the internet. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I think more consumption of content will be done on top. It's time again for our regular feature, bad usability of the podcast. So recently I went to the National Space Centre in Leicester, which is a very good museum, by the way. Just a shout out to them. If you, you should definitely go. Really interesting. They have this amazing tall tower with a rocket in it. But as you go up the floors in the tower, it tells you about the space race. So like Russia and America fighting to get in space. It's very interesting. Total aside. Anyway. Leicester is definitely the place <laughs> that I think of when I think space flight. <laughs> It's got a long history of space. No, it hasn't got any relation whatsoever, has it? I think there is some relation. I think that's why it's there. Well, Leicester is in neither Russia nor America. So if it's about those two superpowers... It's because of the University of Leicester's Space Research Centre. Okay. Apparently. Bit of a weird location, I agree. Anyway, when we arrived there, we had to contend with a pay-and-display parking machine. Oh! Which... I think you had to be a uh, a rocket scientist to operate. Oh, good, good, good pun. So yeah. <laughs> um, so I, and I and I think to be fair to whoever's made it, I think they clearly built originally a coin parking machine that you feed coins into and press a green button, and then it had been adapted for contactless payment. Right. Okay. And the problem the problem with that is that with a coin machine, it's very easy. You keep feeding coins in until you've paid enough for your time and then you press the green button and it makes the ticket or you press cancel, right? Yeah. But if you have a contactless payment, you first got to tell it how many increments of, you know, what amount are you paying for? Oh, of course. Yeah, you've got to choose the price first. And they often don't have any many buttons on. But this particular machine had a series of buttons that, like a tick and a blue plus and all these weird buttons. And the sequence of buttons that you had to press to say you wanted to stay for, say, three hours while visiting the museum was incomprehensible. It's so non-obvious. It had to have a, a, a flowchart of about 13 steps. 13 steps? Yeah. Hold on a sec. Right. Let me think. The most ideal user interface here. So you, you arrive at in front of this machine, you could press plus a few times to sort of increment the time that you're planning on being there and the, and the amount of time that you want to no, pay no, no. for. So the first thing you have to do according to the tick sheet, okay. if you want to pay by contactless, is to press the green tick. Uh, okay. And then you have to press the blue button. The blue plus button. The blue plus button to increment the amount of uh, units of time yeah. that you want. Yeah, just like I would expect. Then you press the green tick again to validate. Okay. Hang on, what's validate? You mean just confirm? Confirm that's what you want. Yeah. And then what you have to do is tap your card. Yeah. And then it processes it. And then afterwards it says, would you like a receipt? Basically is the, is the process. Okay. But it's, but it's on 13 steps. 
Well, it is if you consider the other methods of payment. Oh, uh, which is coins. Yeah, there's a whole flowchart on the top of the machine, which is like, takes you down, like, which way are you paying? Oh, right, okay. Three different steps. There are actually more steps if you want to pay by card. If you want to pay by credit card, like, then insert your card as opposed to contactless. Then it's insert card, press the blue plus button several times to add the time up that you want. Press the green confirm, you enter your PIN number, you then press the blue button again to validate, and then you take the ticket. <laughs> Hang on, why are you pressing the blue button to validate this time, whereas the green I don't know. tick was what you validated with That's it. what it says on the flowchart. Yeah, that's what it says. Inconsistent. It is weird. But if you came up to this user interface and didn't have that flowchart, there is no way you would know how to do a contactless payment. If, if I look at all the buttons on there... so. The actual buttons on the machine, okay, there is a power button. There is a button with two flags on it. Two flags? Yeah. There is a a yellow button with what looks like a kind of refresh icon on it. Right. There's a a blue plus, a blue minus. There's a blue button with two pluses on it. There's a green tick and a red cross. So without that flowchart saying first press green tick, then press blue plus, then press green tick, what would you press on the machine? uh, I would have started with the plus... I would have started by incrementing some time. That's what I would have done. But the machine wouldn't have known which method of payment I I required, would it? But the other methods of payment need you to put the money in first. Yeah. So if you're paying by credit card, you slide the card in. And if you are paying with coins, you just tip the coins in. So if that's what it needs... I would have expected a button for the contactless route, a button for the credit card route. Well, you don't really need that many buttons, do you? You need, you really only need a cancel button and a button that says contactless. And the button that says contactless can just say like tap to increment contactless time or something. And you could just press, you only need that one button. You don't need anything else. You just need to just tap, tap that the number of times you need, then hold your card on it. That's it. I agree with that. Yes. But you've mentioned one of those buttons that isn't mentioned, which is the spinny refresh thing. What would that be for? It's not mentioned in the flowchart. Do you think that could be so the back? Pa- the, pa- in, the power button, the... F- oh, no, the flags are. The flags are for changing language. Kind of makes sense. Okay. The power button isn't mentioned what that does. The refresh isn't mentioned what that does. The blue minus isn't... I assume that's like taking away the time. Yeah, I, think, I would Guess. assume so. The blue double pluses doesn't... I don't... That's not mentioned. And the red cross isn't mentioned either. Although that's... I assume fairly obvious it's cancelled. I assume so. One, one of the most confusing things is... Yeah, some of the messages on screen. So when I first pressed the tick, as it said, it the machine then on screen said, uh, pay... Hold on, let me just get the... Yeah. So it says, please wait a moment. It takes a... It's very slow as well, by the way, I should add. So oh, it takes a long time annoying. to do anything. So you press the green tick, wait a while, and it says... Pay with coins or card or push the blue button is what it says on screen. Those are your options. Why Why would you want to push the blue button? Oh, right. Well, if you've read the flowchart, it's because you want to pay by contactless. What? But, but it doesn't say press the blue button to pay by contactless. It says pay with coins or card or press the blue button. Those things, those things aren't equivalent. It's like, it may as, yeah. It's confusing as well, because I do want to pay with card, but I want to pay with contactless rather than inserting the card. Yeah, oh. so confusing. Confusing. Um, so yeah, I pressed the blue button on this because I've read the flowchart, of course. You know, yeah. you should have to read a flowchart to use a parking meter. Not really. And then because there's only one tier of payment as well, the first thing it says when you press the blue button, so there's only one amount, it's three pounds all day. They've, they've, it's obviously, the machine obviously can cope with like one hour, two hour, three hour, but it's been programmed that it's the only amount you can pay is three pounds for all day. Oh, it makes all those buttons pointless. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you, so you press, I press plus, the blue plus, and then it immediately just said maximum amount reached. Oh. Which really isn't the most user-friendly message. No, because that makes you think that you've done something wrong. Yeah, it just says maximum amount reached, and it says payment three pounds. 
And then it's not clear what to do, but I had read the flow chart. So again, I pressed the green tick button. <laughs> and then it says, please wait a moment. It says, present, it says, it says, present wave and pay card, which is actually not a terminology that anyone would be familiar present with. Wave. Present wave and pay card. Oh, you present your wave and pay card. As opposed, but most no. people refer to it as contactless. Yeah, I would have thought that's present, wave <laughs> and pay card. <laughs> There's no comma. There's no Is there comma? not? I can't see on no. the screen. But like, I just imagine you just waving at this machine. So yeah, you, so then it does that. And then the thing that, that, that happened next when I tried to use this machine is it took so long to process that payment that the, the, the parking attendant for the car park came over and was like mashing the buttons going, it does work, it does work. <laughs> and I'm just going, pressing every button that was on there. And I'm thinking, I've got no confidence in this. If it has to have a flow chart. And a man to come over to help you. And a man to come over to help. And he's just, yeah, he hammers the buttons. Um, in fact, we'll put the video of this on the on Twitter afterwards so you can all see it. That's unusable podcast. Yes. But the the thing that then made me laugh is that, so after it's accepted your payment, it then asks you if you want a receipt. And the language for this is brilliant. And, and I have no idea which button would, does which. It says, bank receipt, question mark. <laughs> bank receipt, question well, mark. that's good. Okay. That's concise. And, and then it says below, valid or cancel. What? What do you mean? It says, bank receipt, valid or cancel. Oh, so no. So which button? I mean, I assume... Well, sure it's a yes or no. Bank, bank receipt, yes or no. But also, what buttons do they map to? Now, I can guess green tick is probably... Valid. Yes, valid. And red cross is no. But what have... What so unusual... Why can't it say yes or no? But also, what an unuser-friendly terminology. Bank receipt, valid or cancel. Imagine if that was a person that you've had to interact with. You know, a person that's taking payment for, for the parking. They're speaking normal words. Yeah, just... It's just... It's just bizarre. It, it's clearly been retrofitted from like a, an old-fashioned parking machine and it's just had layers of things added on top of it. They've obviously gone from coin and then gone, oh, we need to add card to keep up. And no one at any point has gone, do you know what? We need to just look at how someone is using this from the ground up. But as soon as you have to put a flowchart on a, on you know on the front of it to, to, to explain what needs to happen, you've failed. For something as simple as a parking machine, epic yeah. fail. I have a similar story because I went to a car park also. This was at Cromford Mills and they had a separate sign next to the parking machine, which looks kind of similar to yours, but different. And this sign had a one, two, three, four, five, a six part process. So not, <laughs> not as, not as complicated. And actually this machine wasn't too difficult, but you first get to it and the first instruction is enter your full number plate. Can't really complain. I probably shouldn't have my my card number plate. I did have to sort of go back and check, to be honest. And then it says in the instructions, use the back button to correct it. Actually, that's pretty good. And then it has validate, which is the green tick. And this button here looks quite similar to, to your button, actually. And then you insert the coins... And then you press confirm and you take the ticket. But actually at the step where it says insert the coins, I just swiped my card and it was fine. And this pretty much was a good experience. Oh, really? So, I don't know. But it it still needed a sign explaining how to use it. Yeah, true. I do feel like it should be... It should be obvious. It's a it's a parking machine. It the never o- said on the machine itself that you needed to insert the uh, the registration number. It was a sign at the side that that said that. But then oh, I don't know. You have to have the instruction written somewhere. I think I think it should be on a screen. This did have a few fairly incompensible buttons though. Like it's got an, a kind of on off standby button, which is weird. I don't think this, that's this machine had that. Is it the same? We look, are we looking at the same machine. Is it Parkion? I don't know what it's called. Yeah, it's Parkion. Parkion. Um, We've named and shamed them. Oh well, no, this one's 
looks fine, but it does have a person in a wheelchair. Like, I'm not quite sure. On what... a button? On a button, yeah. I don't know what that would be. I assume that's like, get help. I can't reach it. I don't know. Patronising. Person in a wheelchair might be absolutely fine. But this does have two blue pluses as well, which I don't know what that's for. It does make it very confusing when is... there's all these buttons that you don't need. I think it's difficult actually because if you're paying by coins you just feed the coins in until you've paid the amount that you want and then press go because the action of feeding the coins in is telling it at the same time how much you want to pay the problem with the contactless payment that construct is no longer there with a contactless payment it doesn't know how much you want to spend Mm -hmm. so you have to have some kind of user interface to allow the the user to select the amount. You know, if it's £3.60 for an hour, the act of putting in £3.60 tells the machine you want an hour. So all you need to do is feed the coins in and press go. What if you accidentally put in £3.70? Depends whether it gives change or not. Oh, I don't like it when they don't give change. That just feels incredibly tight. I once saw a parking machine, by the way, which was very, very uh, philosophical. It just said, as you walked up to it, it just said, change is possible. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. Did you know, by the way, that mobile phones are more popular now than laptops? There are more websites were viewed on mobiles and tablets than they were on laptops since 2016. Yes, I did know that. Well, fine. Screw you. I heard an advert on the radio for Mercedes voice-activated in-car thing. Yeah. And it was voiced by Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones, who you won't know. But No, but I know she did a walk of shame. All right. That's... Because I was at the stairs last week. Right, irrelevant. This is not the time to talk about your holidays. <laughs> so in this advert, she sort of pretends to talk to the car and she says, Hi, Mercedes, tell me a joke. And it goes, I can't tell you a joke because my engineers were German. <laughs> Does it actually do that? Yeah, well, I don't know. I've got one. I think it's, it's an actually, expensive way to try out. It's not that it's got a personality, though. Is that a personality? That just sounds like a thing. Yeah, because the Google one does things that are sort of Googleish and evocative of the Google brand. So I think, it, you know, they're playing up to their stereotype, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, that is the end of the podcast. If you have seen or used something unusable recently, we would love to hear about it. You can email us at podcast at theunusable.com and we are on Twitter at Unusable Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we've got plenty more. Last episode, we talked about bad road signs that lie. Andy had a long story about ordering a KFC that was just unmissable. (laughs) Music is by Gold5472. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, that's it. Until next time. Bye. Bye.